You know, Miles, people give Jean Grey a lot of grief over how often she comes back from the dead, but it just, it seems so unfair to single her out. Yeah, fair enough, Jay. I mean, there are whole events that are just centered around mass resurrection. Like, take Chaos War. What's Chaos War? Uh, Nightmare made a bid for dimensional domination, put everyone alive into comas, and temporarily brought back the dead. You know. Wait, wasn't that Selene? Oh, no, no. You're thinking of Necrotia, which is an entirely different event based around mass resurrection. It happened twice. Kinda? I mean, they weren't possessed during Chaos War. Well, most of them weren't possessed during Chaos War. Who were the exceptions? Let's see. Sophie and Esme Cuckoo got taken over by the Carrion Crow, which was this evil bird god who devoured the dead. They really don't have good luck with birds, do they? I suspect you're thinking of the Phoenix with regards to the Cuckoos in particular, but honestly, that's kind of true of the X-Men in general. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time they've gotten into a full-on brawl with a bunch of ravens, I'd have... Well, I'd have at least two dollars, which is something. When was the other time? A little while after Operation Zero Tolerance. Oh, is that the story where Cyclops has a moral crisis about punching a bird in the face? Yeah, that'd be the one. But back to Chaos War. So the Cuckoos got possessed by Carrion Crow, and Thunderbird kind of consciously channeled, well, Thunderbird. Oh, and then there was Moira too, but that's a little more complicated. Thunderbird channeled Moira McTaggart. No, no, Moira McTaggart got possessed by Destiny. Wait, was this before or after she died? Which one? I mean, don't, don't answer that. The answer's actually yes either way. Okay, so Nightmare brought them back, and then Destiny possessed Moira. No, no, Destiny didn't come back. Moira got brought back, uh, not Destiny. Uh, how did Moira get possessed, then? She found one of Destiny's diaries. Okay. I mean, they're called Destiny's diaries, but they're not really diaries. They're just the books where she wrote down all of her visions of the future um, as a teenager. As one does. Oh, and also hid parts of her soul in them so she could take over the body of anyone who read one. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 190 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a somewhat strange episode. But first, I gotta say, so Daylight Saving Time just started, and here in Portland, at least, it basically suddenly became spring as of yesterday. I went out and had some beers with some friends outside. It was very nice. And I've also started this policy of actually trying to get a reasonable amount of sleep, and I feel kind of good about life. And I say this, first of all, because I like to give everyone an update about the Miles Stokes story, but second of all, because we're dealing with some kind of weird and kind of rough comics today, so I think that having those defenses to begin with is going to uh, be a solid defense. I, on the other hand, live in New York, where it is full-on The Dark is Rising out tonight, and I lost an hour of sleep last night, so um, I feel like I am in exactly the right frame of mind for the comics we're about to discuss, frankly. I also have my, my rad new trusty X-Men notebook, um, which I'm really excited about. A listener bound these gorgeous um, Blake books for us, and I finally actually, just, I, after, after a lot of what can I put in this that would make sense, I kind of went with what should have been obvious, which is having one big solid place to put all of my show notes, which are usually scattered through a million tiny notebooks. That that makes a lot of sense. If I didn't do mine entirely digitally, I would do the same thing. As it is, I'm still paralyzed because those books are beautiful. But, okay, so I've been in a really good mood, like, notebooks aside, and you've been in not a great mood, so what you're saying is that it's going to be... No, no, I'm in, a, I'm, in a fine, I'm in a fine mood. I'm just, yeah, I'm just not, you know, explicitly hyper-lucid or anything. I'm, you know, st I'm, I'm barricaded into my home with a bunch of paint stripper, and... Waffle, waffle batter, which is great. The waffle batter is great. Don't eat the paint stripper. The paint stripper is also great, but it's for it's great at stripping paint, which is what it's supposed to be doing. Paint stripper and waffle batter, the Jay Edidin story. It's very cat and girl. It kind of is, yeah. Well, anyway, all of those things very much aside, so we were going to cover a few Excalibur issues as our next plot content stuff. But as we were preparing that, we realized that those issues reference a couple of pretty obscure stories. And those stories are both special editions. Uh, instead of having annuals, Wolverine and Excalibur had special editions, as, as you may be aware. And so today we're going to be taking a look at Wolverine Bloodlust and Excalibur The Possession. 
We surely are. And I went back and forth, and I'm still not really sure. So they're both strange comics. One is certainly better than the other. Where do we start and where do we finish? What order do we do these in? I need us to start with Wolverine Bloodlust. And I'm sorry if you wanted to go the other way. I apologize in advance. But the thing is, Excalibur the Possession is so bad that it makes me intensely angry. Like, I, I don't even get mad at the creators. Like, the comic itself just, just, I, I want to fight it. I want to fight that comic. I want to fight that comic book. And the point is that if I'm going to be coherent, I need to get that out of the way first. The coherence, I mean. That's entirely reasonable, and I think my attitude toward the possession may have been slightly more charitable than yours, but as any longtime listeners are aware, that is sometimes, perhaps even often, the case about comics. Miles, it's it's so bad. It's so, it's so amazingly bad. I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just saying I have tried very hard to find the good parts, but apparently we're doing that second, so maybe first we should dive into Wolverine Bloodlust. For pointless reasons, the term bloodlust now always makes me think of the Y-Wolves. Oh, I always think of that old uh, science fiction-y, I guess it's more of a slasher movie that Mystery Science Theater covered that one time. Yes. That, the, one that was, the one that was kind of trying to be the most dangerous game. Exactly. That one. There were a bunch of teenagers and there was a basement full of, like, corpses and, that were all posed and stuff. And it was, I mean, it was great in its own way. Yeah, the Y-Wolves are better. I mean, quality-wise, the White Wolves are better. I don't know that they're necessarily more entertaining. I, I feel like having spent, like, a brief but deeply intense period of time with them, they, they automatically just sort of supplant that movie. That's reasonable. Oh, yeah, because you wrote that White Wolves story for the Adventure Time comic, didn't you? I did, and, uh, yeah, Kel, Kel McDonald and I, um, I wrote, and she drew a backup story for Adventure Time, which is about the White Wolves trying to get tenure. Um, I don't remember what issue it's in, but it definitely um, is my... Uh, two middle fingers up, bicycling way backwards, letter to academia. Well done. I quite enjoyed that story, despite not being familiar at all with Adventure Time. I mostly like that that, that I got to use counter-espionage as a sound effect. Legit. Actually, Hub and Corey on the last episode of Tighten Up the Defense were talking about old comics that used to use, like, the thing that was happening as a sound effect. Like, someone would get an idea, and the sound effect would be, idea... I fucking love that because the whole point of sound effects is that they're supposed to be evocative. They're sort of punctuation moments. And on one hand, you can use them to evoke a very specific sound that the reader is not familiar with. And you can do that by, by spelling out the noise. And actually, that's something I'm going to talk about a little bit in context of Bloodlust. But um, the comic, not the concept with the Y Or the movie. Or the movie. <laughs> but you can also use them to basically a shorthand for a concept or a shorthand for a noise that someone does know. Um, or you can use them to sort of lampoon the entire concept. But yeah, I love that use of them. It's fundamentally pretty silly, but it really, really works well in its context. Jay, I feel you would be remiss if you didn't uh, mention your favorite sound effect from The Adventures of Superhero Girl. Yes! Sucker punch through time and space, the greatest sound effect ever. It kind of is. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the two comics we're covering today are both special editions. Those were generally perfect bound, uh, printed on higher quality paper, and more expensive than annuals. For those of you unfamiliar with the term, perfect bound doesn't mean the binding was actually perfect. It's the style of binding that you'll associate with like a paperback book as opposed to a magazine or a comic. Exactly. And sometimes I feel that was super justified. Like Excalibur the Sword is Drawn and Excalibur Mojo Mayhem are both phenomenal comics. And I like that they're like little mini trade paperbacks. No, no, they're usually centered. Um, you generally aren't going to justify unless it's text. Ah, terminology! A pedantry of editins. Hmm. I, I just like making bad, obtuse printing jokes because... You know, there's, there's somewhere out, someone out there who's going to be happy either because they recognize something or because there's an exception to the rule I just stated that they can actually about. And either, either way, I am here to personally make that person's day. We take our pleasures where we can find them. But Wolverine Bloodlust is the second Wolverine special edition. Um, it was in 1990, I believe. The first one was Wolverine the Jungle Adventure, which we got to cover someday because it's goddamn bonkers. But for now, this is the one that's relevant. It's also pretty bonkers, so it's, it's got that going for it. Now, this was co-written and co-drawn by Alan Davis and Paul Neary and colored by Bernie J. It's a pretty comic. 
it's not spectacular. I, I definitely wouldn't describe it as, as necessary reading or Wolverine canon. It's more of a fun side story. And there are points where it compares necessarily and by definition, because again, Weapon X is just so beautiful, um, slightly unfavorably to Weapon X, but that's okay. So we, we open this story in the barren wastes of the Yukon where Wolverine or another shadowy clawed figure is bloodily murdering a man who may or may not be Santa Claus. So I've been going more and more gray as the months go by, and that's especially true in my beard. And it occurs to me that that's my destiny. I will eventually be murdered by a Wendigo in the Yukon and be described by the papers as a man who may or may not have been Santa Claus. Miles, there are a lot of ways to get murdered in a superhero comic if you look like Santa Claus. I used to collect them. I didn't know that about you, but I'm not surprised. Well, not the comics, just the panels. Um, I'm very bad at Christmas. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, the best one is, is Batman just clocking him, but there's definitely a Wolverine stabbing him that I wanted to put in my Christmas cards one year. You vetoed that. You knew about that because you told me we couldn't put it on our Christmas cards. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I think my favorite instance of Santa Claus getting killed is actually from, I think it was Batman the Brave and the, and the Bold. It's the episode of the Red Tornado. That is one of my all-time favorite specials because it is about Red Tornado trying to learn what the Christmas spirit is and what he eventually identifies based on a kid's description as the Christmas spirit is actually the feeling of being about to explode. I, it just, I just really identify with that legit well anyway this murderous figure is not actually wolverine because wolverine is drinking in a bar yeah but he experienced vision of the murder so intensely that he's not sure if it's a hallucination or a flashback which is a common problem for wolverine a lot of his memories aren't really quite his so a bar fight ensues because wolverine has just crunched a beer glass in his hand and the local yokels Local yokels, that's a really euphonious phrase, are just itching for a fight. Regarding the glass, I gotta say, Jessica Jones did it better. Jessica Jones does a lot of things better, and a lot of things worse. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a toss-up in, in that particular situation. Right. But there's this great pair of panels, and so, Jay, you mentioned that these comics were pretty, but not all that exciting, this comic specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is damn pretty, and part of that is Alan Davis's, like, complete mastery of comics art. And there's a pair of panels where Logan is doing his best just to keep to himself as everyone is yelling at him about being short or whatever, and then somebody pokes him in the back with a little poke sound effect, and his face goes from neutral to, like, this kind of mischievous, evil smile as he realizes now he has an excuse, and it's pure Davis. Davis shows characters having fun so well, and when Logan has fun, it tends to involve broken noses at the very least. Wolverine is still so worked up from his vision that he almost stabs another Santa-looking dude for real with a broken bottle before a nice local lady, the one he was talking to pre-fight, drags him out of the melee. And this woman introduces herself as Saskia, sassy for short, and she is clearly looking to take Wolverine home when they are attacked by a bunch of creepy dudes whom, when I was first reading this, I thought of as, as little Wendigo guys. They look like sort of smaller Wendigos. But they also have the same hair as Logan, kind of like Beast or Wildside or Wolfsbane, depending on the artist, or Star Fox. Like, okay, that is a really challenging haircut to get. I thought about this a lot when we did our Meltdown cosplay. So the fact that, like, half the men in the Marvel Universe and some of the women have it is impressive. So do you know about the hair as it exists on TV right now? I... I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm intrigued. This is the thing that's actually called the hair by TV stylists because it is the hair that almost every female character in any kind of sitcom or action show is going to have, which is a layered haircut that's curled back away from her face in, in long sort of in, in long waves. Um, and almost every female character's got, got, got a variation on this haircut who you see on TV these days. And it has to do with the way you can show and light a face while still having hair down, which is almost, which is really difficult to do with long hair. What I sort of assume is that this hairstyle is the 90s comics equivalent of that, that it, it lets you do something compositionally or it lets you have a lot of hair without having to really worry about how it's going to move realistically, for instance, and in a way that's pretty easy to draw but still fun looking. You know, that makes a lot of sense. I like that. You really have to look up this haircut thing, though, because it's, it's ubiquitous. And once you start seeing it, you stop being able to not see it. It's like the arrow in the FedEx logo. Or being familiar with Save the Cat and watching any movie. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 really amazing. I'll put a link to it in the, the visual companion to this episode. Um, now, Wolverine takes out five of these little Wendigo dudes, but the rest of them vanish along with Sassy. 
And we also get our first hint that something really not right beyond the hunting humans thing is going on with these guys. Um, because the remaining corpses catch fire when the falling snow hits them. And as they ignite, so does Wolverine's bloodlust um, with what's going to be a refrain in his head throughout this story. Thirst. Blood. Kill. Wolverine does eventually shake off the bloodlust and manages to change into his usual Wolverine costume. This is the brown and orange one, my personal favorite. And it's pretty great because it's not just him changing, it's him specifically taking a moment to chill out by meditating naked in the snow in front of a pile of Wendigo corpses. Uh, one fewer, because one got hit by snow and burst into flame, with his costume carefully folded in front of him. Like, I think I actually kind of buy that. That seems like a Logan thing to do. Yeah, that's a very Logan thing to do. And... Beyond nude meditation, it's also a pretty good symbolic moment of him taking control of the situation and claiming, but also containing the more bestial part of himself. The visuals here are really nice also. I mean, aside from it just being beautiful Alan Davis art, which is like every single panel here, the background is just this lightly penciled, barely inked white. You can just catch the barest hint of the corpses of these monsters or of the background. What's in full definition, full color, thick inks is Wolverine and his costume. That's what he's just bringing his consciousness into. Throughout the issue, Wolverine's costume is in a palette that's slightly different from most of the environment around him, and in fact, most of the other characters as well. This is a comic that's really dominated by cool colors, even in the bloodier scenes. And Wolverine is this spot of, of saturation and warmth in the middle of that. Pretty great. I mean, Alan Davis, so, of course. What's going on back at the bar? Well, back at the bar, the sheriff has has been called out because, you know, some stranger in town showed up and started throwing punches. And the sheriff has no time for this bullshit because he is busy investigating the murder we saw in the opening. It's going to be the year without a Santa Claus. It's okay. One of one of the hooligans at the bar um, has a Santa beard, too. And in fact, those hooligans decide that Wolverine being an outsider is probably the killer. And they ignore the sheriff and decide they're going to head out to do some mob justice. Meanwhile, things get disturbing because in a cabin at the edge of town, these creatures claim four more victims. And a couple of parents named Nelson and Jeanette who are about to start work on a leisure complex and also, like, their children. Their cute little very young children. Yeah, it's um, it's a very, very hardcore Claremont-level name them, show them blissful, then kill them brutally thing. Yeah, and, and you get the, and they're talking about how the bank loan just went through, and they're finally going to see their dreams realized, and they're so happy, and they, they've got such a bright future ahead of them. No, no, they don't. It's, it's pretty rough. Now, thankfully, Davis does not take a page from what Mr. McFarlane wanted to do in that last issue of his Adjectiveless Spider-Man series, and we do see some splashes of blood, but all the actual murders are off panel, which is fine, and honestly, I think it's much more effective. While we don't get an up-close and personal view of the murders, Wolverine does. And specifically, he gets that from the point of view of the killer. He's understandably really freaked out by this. And I think that's especially the case given his history. Um, he has to pause and check his claws to make sure they're not bloody. And, and that's actually one of the bones I'd pick with this comic. This particular scenario seems like it's almost perfectly tailored to be particularly nightmarish for Wolverine because of his past, because he doesn't know whether these are visions or memories, and because he doesn't really know which of his memories are real and which atrocities he remembers he did or didn't commit, or which things that he might have done that are worse. So putting Wolverine in a situation where he's seeing himself commit really bloody crimes, and he doesn't know quite whether they're real or not, I feel like should involve some, some examination of that, and this, this comic really doesn't at all. That said, though, if I'm getting my dates correct, this came out before Weapon X did. So the idea of Wolverine having had all these repressed memories, that wasn't nearly as much a thing. But I also got to say, I keep coming back to the art here. And Alan Davis does superhero art in particular very well. And one of the reasons is he's not uh, opposed to messing with the way things would work physically in reality for better effects. So, like, Wolverine's mask, I mean, it is a mask. It's probably at least a little bit stiff to get those big pointy thingums on the side of his head. But here, it's almost part of his face. As he furrows his brow, the mask furrows with him. And he just looks so human as he's terrified, trying to steel himself to look down at his claws to see whether he did this horrible, horrible murder. It works, and... 
I think the art here does some of the heavy lifting that maybe the narration or the dialogue do not. Valid. Now, as Wolverine's trying to figure out what the hell is going on, he is ambushed by yet another group of, of the little Wendigo dudes, but these guys don't attack him. What they do instead is pull his mind into a trippy astral plane-like vista and introduce themselves. This is, this is a place called the Alstra, and we will learn more about it shortly. But it is gorgeous. It's got this almost neon bright pastel color scheme. There's just these big solid shapes of color. Everything is glowing. It looks like it's made of crystal or light or something. So this is actually the other place where I will invoke Weapon X because the palette and art style here is very much the palette and art style from the end of Weapon X. Yeah, it totally is. I didn't make that connection, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. And again, this is one of those, this comic does it really beautifully, but nothing does it quite as well as Barry, Barry Windsor Smith. I can't believe we're comparing Alan Davis unfavorably to anybody. Usually we compare everybody else unfavorably to Davis. I know, <laughs> I know. I know, and the thing is, Davis is still so good here. It's, well, it's, it's, it's like the thing with anyone else in Davis. You can be an amazing artist who is very well suited to the book you're doing and still not quite be Excalibur Alan Davis. I mean, as is the case here, for instance, I think this is a story Davis and Neary do beautifully on, but I also don't think it's a story that's best suited to Davis's strengths. Now, who are these uh, thin Wendigo live in an astral plane people? All right. These are the Neuri, N-E-U-R-I. They are an ancient humanoid race from the Ural Mountains, and centuries ago, the Neuri achieved harmony with the Earth and gained the ability to tap into the energy of, of, of the Earth of Gaia itself, um, as well as to commune with something called the Alstra, which is the ill-defined astral plane-esque space they're hanging out in right now. Sidebar time, because the Neuri are sort of based on folkloric figures. So they're, they're fairly clearly, they, they get their name from a tribe of, of the same name that shows up in Herodotus and pretty much nowhere else. And those Neri were from what would have been modern day Ukraine or Belarus. And they were allegedly all magicians who turned into wolves once a year and were apparently driven out of their lands by snakes, which is pretty hardcore and which is mostly irrelevant in this story. Um, also, some guy, I think, in the 19th century thought that the, the Nuri were one of the 10 lost tribes of Israel, but that particular assumption was based on super bullshit linguistics, so probably best to just table that as well. Anyway, uh, Wolverine's Nuri were not chased away by snakes. I don't know if they can turn into wolves, but they headed up to Siberia from their original homeland to avoid encroaching humanity, not necessarily snakes. And once they got there, they built a subterranean utopia, evolved group consciousness, and used it to explore the cosmos. They also turned into yetis because it was very cold up there, and due to their connection with the Earth and the astral plane and stuff, you know, yetis. They could just, like, yetify. They could just concentrate real hard and poof out fur all over their bodies. Yes. Uh, sort of Megan style, but, but kind of at a later stage of life. I was thinking of Gordito from Dr. McNinja, who just grew a mustache from sheer, sheer force of will. Yeah. He's a good kid. He is. And these people are good kids. They're Canadian hippie yetis, Jay. They're, they're not Canadian. They're Siberian. Well, they're in Canada now. That doesn't make them Canadian. I mean, I feel like they probably filled out the paperwork. You know, they try to do things by the book. No, they pointedly didn't. Like, it's a major story point that they're not there to stay. They're just coming through. Okay, fine. They're roving, uh, traveling hippie yetis with a connection to the astral plane, and I want to hang out with them. They seem very nice, and they could show me the Alshra, and it would be very pretty. Now, while the Nuri were, were hanging out underground in Siberia, building their fancy caverns and communing with the, the cosmos, humans advanced from killing one another to also killing the planet itself, at which point the Nuri who are primally linked to the Earth, began to sicken and die. And the Nuri decided that they were just going to kind of run with that. Or at least most of them did, because these murderers that have been going around, you know, murdering, those are renegade Nuri. They broke off from the group mind to hunt and, you know, eat people. And this whole concept strikes me as a very sort of Wendigo thing. And it's got me questioning whether non-humans can become Wendigo. So what, what if a human eats a sentient, sentient non-human in Canada or vice versa? Like, is that, is that supposed to be what's happening here? Because they never say it outright. I feel like someone somewhere in the Marvel Universe has a large set of color-coded binders with the various cannibalistic rules of, like, mystical Marvel Universe Canada. 
Well, remember the the storyline where there was there was human flesh, you know, put into a massive amount of canned food, and so people started turning into Wendigos everywhere, and they just had to take them across the Canadian border. And they all turned human. That was from yeah. Amazing X Men, and I love I love almost everything in Amazing X Men. That was a short lived but wonderful title. Also, Rochelle, who we talked to at Emerald City, she colored like a lot of it. Yeah, but I also love that concept that that Wendigos are a specifically Canadian construct. So if you eat a human outside of Canada, you won't turn into a Wendigo. So, listeners, if you're going to eat a human, pick a different country. Also, maybe, like, think about what you're doing, because while we've discussed that sometimes that's okay, like, I feel like a lot of the time it might not be. The thing is, I think Wendigo rules don't actually consider the moral context of, of the cannibalism. Like, even if you find a random human corpse and just eat some because you're starving, or, as in, in that Amazing X-Men story, get you know, unknowingly consume human flesh because it's packaged as something else, you still get Wendigo, which is really unfair. Those Wendigos are real sticklers for legal terminology. Now, okay, so that's what's up with the renegade Nuri. The rest of the Nuri, whom I'm going to call the Paragon Nuri just for the sake of disambiguation and Mass Effect references, are trying to catch up with and stop these renegades, but they can't without themselves become becoming, you know, taken over by the evil. Wolverine, however, has a special ability, the ability to kill the shit out of a lot of different people, including potentially the Renegades. Also, he has a mystic connection to them, which is interesting and never fully explained, and I kind of like that it isn't. It is actually, it is explained. Um, The Paragon Renegades explain that most of humanity has lost the ability to connect to the Ultra, and... Wolverine still has that because it's implied he's he's much more connected to nature and much more in touch with with that part of himself. And Wolverine is specifically tuned in to the Renegades, not the Paragons, because of the state of tug of war between his healing factor and the adamantium in his body, and that puts him in a state of perpetual conflict, which clicks with the Renegades' fucked up frequency. And I think this is actually, I think this may be the first time that we're introduced to the idea of Wolverine's healing factor trying to reject the adamantium implants. That's going to become a really important concept later. Well, as is the whole idea of the adamantium holding back Wolverine's naturalistic, almost animalistic nature, because later on when he loses his adamantium, he's uh, going to degenerate into sort of a weird bestial something or other, and he won't have a nose anymore, and I never fully understood that. But yeah, your explanation does make sense. It It does still seem a little iffy to me that this early on in continuity, Wolverine's just like inherently one with nature. I don't know that there's been enough justification for that for me to buy it. We've seen a lot of that sort of offhand mention, the way he clicks with animals, the fact that he runs off and hangs out in the Canadian wilderness for months at a time, his, his per- perpetual am, am I man or beast or you know, Roban or, no, sorry, that's a robot monster. But yeah, I think there's sufficient precedent for this to work. I mean, I think it's silly, but I think there's precedent. I mean, he does pee basically wherever he feels like it. Does he? Is that a thing? Uh, read between the panels, dude. It's right there. Wolverine's just marking his territory constantly. The X-Men can't stand it. The X-Mansion smells awful. Miles, Miles, that's just paper aging. Wolverine doesn't actually pee between the panels. Well, that makes more sense, because, I mean, you know, the whole page goes yellow, and that would be, like, a lot. I mean, he drinks a lot, so I don't know. Anyway, there is a catch to Wolverine's rapport with the renegade Yuri, which is that... If the link keeps getting stronger, he's going to get subsumed by it. It's also not going to help let him know when the renegades are nearby because they are super stealthy by virtue of being one with nature. So one of the Paragon Yuri decides that he's going to come along with Wolverine to help. So Wolverine and this, uh, let's call him the guide. I think he's referred to as the guide at one point. They swing by the cabin where the renegades killed that family with such a bright future And Logan goes in despite the guide's warnings and sees what happened. And once again, we don't see anything on panel. We just see enough, enough hints of what happened. Like a little bit of ribcage here, a blood splatter here to make it really dark. And and Wolverine is soon overcome with bloodlust. Now, meanwhile, the mob from town is out hunting Wolverine, but they are waylaid by the renegade Nuri who show up and are about to kill them, when Wolverine shows up and he attacks the renegade Yuri. And I love the bumpkins, the uh, local yokels response here. It's a superhero. What are them alpha flight? I'm, I'm not sure you have a solid sense of Canadian accents, but I'm not sure anyone does because there's also a really silly French accent earlier in this. And I, I think, I think Davis and Neri are just kind of having some fun with it. 
Now, one of the mob is hurt, and his fellows are about to abandon him for fear of him slowing them down. But the guide heals him completely, and the mob at this decides that it's gotten way too weird for their pay grade, and they're probably just going to head home and not do any more murders today. Now, Logan manages to take out what appears to be the last of the renegade Nuri before collapsing mortally wounded, and then he too gets healed by by um, the guide who heals actually not only Logan, but also his costume. Now, that is impressive, and I do appreciate the fact that the dialogue specifically references the costume part, but it's not as impressive as that time that a crystal castle at the center of the cosmos managed to heal Logan from a single drop of blood. And doesn't have the really obnoxious continuity ramifications that that did either, so I'll take this event. Now, they've got to hurry, because one of the renegades survived, and it is now hunting the mob. And in fact, Wolverine is too late. It catches all of the hunters. It eats them and absorbs their energy or souls, and that gives that last renegade Nuri the power to take over the Alstra. And there is a gigantic fight, as the renegade Nuri and the paragon Nuri, the guide, have this huge, almost Doctor Strange-esque sorcery battle, with all of these shields and slashes and explosions, all in these big swaths of bright colors, as Logan tries to fight his way both through the bloodlust and to the renegade Nuri, it is an awesome freaking fight scene, especially against all the stark white of the background and of the fur of the Paragon Nuri and of the dark energy fur of the Renegade Nuri. It's just, it's so engaging and exciting. Now, once again, though, Wolverine is too late. He is unable to stop the Renegade Nuri from killing the guide, from killing the Paragon, who turns to dust after some inspiring one-liners. And Wolverine decides he's got to finish this fight. So he tracks the last Renegade to a cave where he instead finds... Sassy, the woman who he left the bar with, who disappeared the first time the renegades attacked. And as Wolverine starts to freak out more and more from, you know, the bloodlust, he turns and stabs Sassy right through the chest. And it appears at first that he's given into the bloodlust, but no, actually, he, what, what happened is that he figured out that Sassy is actually the last renegade in disguise. And there is a big fancy fight, which Wolverine, of course, wins with a big shrumped, which is a very silly sound effect. But it kind of fits, because Sassy initially just reverts to the renegade Nuri, but as the renegade Nuri loses cohesion and starts to fall apart, we see it degenerate into this big, slimy, misshapen monstrosity. You can't even see where different limbs and body parts are. It reminds me a hell of a lot, actually, from another Alan Davis illustrated comic. It reminds me of Sidney Crumb from the Captain Britain solo series, the homeless guy that got infected with the Fury. Do you remember that? Oh, shit, you're absolutely right. And it's it's sickening in the same way, but it's so effective. That shrumped takes the last of the renegades off the field. And the Paragon Nuri, the surviving ones, show up and tell Wolverine that they're going to head home to die quietly. And Wolverine has really mixed feelings about this, as we learn in the closing narration. I want to argue to say that they can't just give up. They've achieved so much, so much knowledge, so much power... Maybe accepting destiny takes more strength than I have. The Neary said I could be like them, but for my adamantium bones and claws. Tempt an idea, the beauty of the Alshra, and a mind that could soar among the stars. But I ain't so sure. I'm a fighting man, and the way I see it, this is worth fighting for. Anyway, it could get really dull floating around the cosmos without a beer. With a beer, on the other hand, that's a pretty good vacation. Oh, man. So in the summer, I love river floats. And part of why I love river floats is the beer that I'm really not supposed to have. It's just very relaxing. And, you know, to be able to uh, be on an inner tube, but like a cosmic one in, you know, the cosmos on a summer day that lasted an eon with a beer would be very nice. I would enjoy that. Park service is going to come knock down your door. Oh, yeah. Um, listeners, if you work for the park service, uh, be nice. It just sounds fun as all. Well, our blood has been lusted as much as it can for this episode, and that means it's time to talk about the July 1991 Excalibur Special Edition. It's the fourth after The Sword is Drawn, Mojo Mayhem, and Weird War 3. This one is Excalibur, The Possession. I don't like this comic. It's a rough comic, and you know, I think I know part of why. Now, we try not to pick on creators, because, you know, every creator has their upsides, they do a lot of things weirdly well, even if they do some things badly. That said, at this point, Michael Higgins, you are an enemy of this podcast. 
I mean, maybe an enemy of Excalibur, because we've seen Michael Higgins write a number of Excalibur things. He did the Demon Druid fill-in. He did the fill-in where Franklin Richards came back from the future, but it was really Mastermind. He did the fill-in where they helped a horsified Alex Power fight Nightmare. And he did Weird War Three. And, um... I'll just try to say nicely that uh, those are not among my favorite Excalibur issues at all. Higgins, you have a lot to answer for. And you know what? You know who else does? Tom Morgan. Tom Morgan penciled this issue, and he also penciled parts of Weird War Three. And and he he he's part of the problem, man. I gotta say though, Paul Mounts, who does colors, I think does a fine job, and the colors really help redeem the story a little bit. No, you know what? Nothing redeems this story. This comic is so bad that it, it makes me actively angry. I, I want to fight this comic. And I'd win because it's an inanimate object. Well, if you were to fight a comic, then you'd probably want to train, as Nightcrawler is on a jungle gym in the lighthouse being watched by Megan. You think your forced segues can save you, but no, no. Oh yes, let's open with some Megan dialogue. And I'm kind of I've, I'm kind of jealous that you get to voice Megan here, Miles, because man, this is this is a this is quite some lines. Oh my, Nightcrawler! Not only have your mutant abilities of teleportation returned to normal levels over the past few months, but your physical prowess seems to be at its peak as well. Your limbs have never seemed more potent. Your physical attributes more apparent. It is a pleasure just to watch you perform these acts. Who the fuck talks like that? Your limbs have never seemed more potent. Have those words ever been uttered in that order by an actual person? I would hazard no. Well, now they have, and not just by this dialogue, but by me, because I got to do the line. Yeah, but only because you were reading the dialogue. <laughs> well. Your potent limbs, your, your physical prowess seems to be at its peak as well. This is like some Silver Age Charles Xavier weird. Well, anyway, dialogue aside, this scene would be kind of reminiscent of that X-Force scene we just covered where Farrell is watching Shatterstar train, but then Megan joins Kurt on the big jungle gym thing and starts to gradually turn blue herself as she talks admiringly. This is basically just like in the dream that Kurt will have about her in an issue of Excalibur that comes out a little later, you know, that one we already covered. Also, in this story, uh, Kurt has Beyonder hair, and I would, I would like you to explain that to me. I don't know, but as I understand, when you have a jerry curl, it kind of, it's kind of greasy, so you have to be careful what you, you lean against. I don't know. So I heard when I read about the no, Wikipedia. Why, why does Kurt have Beyonder hair? Um, maybe he thought it was time for a change. It wasn't. Fair. Well, Captain Britain appears, and unlike after Kurt's dream about Megan that seemed very similar from that story, at this point, Brian's quite pleased with their teamwork, and he says so. Although he's privately iffy, and as he flies off, he thinks about this to himself. At least I can admit it to myself. I'm still a little uncomfortable when I see the two of them together. I know nothing is happening between them, but still. I mean, I know the dialogue's awkward, but Jay, I, I kind of feel like you're leaning into the awkward a little extra this time. It's the only way I can get through it. Well, I'll give Brian one thing. Um, musing to himself about the whole situation is probably much healthier than, like, beating the hell out of Nightcrawler and breaking his leg, so uh, at least they're that, right? So Megan takes her amazing gigantic hair and, and plunging cleavage because, among its other weirdnesses, this comic has just unsettlingly and inappropriately pendulous breasts all over it. Not, like, at random, but still— <laughs> And no, this this isn't this isn't a guy Davis demon. We're okay. Um, <laughs> in that in that regard, we're okay. We're not okay in any other regard. Honestly, that would be better because that that's really good art. But um, anyway, um, Megan Megan heads out as as Captain Britain flies off grumbling, and suddenly a huge yeti looking monster shows up and attacks Kurt. And I would think we were two for two with yetis in these comics, but it ends up being a little different. Captain Britain flies back to the lighthouse and beats up this yeti monster in an illegitimately rad fight scene. Like, there were hammer blows, people getting slammed into walls, people swooping through the air. It looks genuinely cool, and I will absolutely give this comic credit for that. And he wins the fight just in time for his allies to arrive. Don't worry, Captain. Phoenix is here. Not to mention Shadowcat! So Phoenix realizes immediately that this, this, this big brown yeti is actually Megan, but possessed. How she realizes this, we don't know, but it's necessary for the plot to advance. So she does. 
Because, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, Megan changes shape based on the feelings of those around her. This has been a major plot point for literally the entire history of the character. So if I were in Phoenix's position, that's where I would immediately go. Not that she's somehow possessed by a spiritual entity. I mean, I guess she has, like, telepathy and cosmic powers, but does that let you distinguish between something somebody would normally do in any given storyline and it suddenly being a spooky ghost? I mean, by definition, it probably does, but I like the idea of it being like, okay, come on, who's, who's thinking about yetis? Who's having yeti feelings? Well, Captain Britain is quite shocked. Oh my god! Megan! Speak to me! To which Megan responds... And Jay, we have got to put that in the visual companion because I have texted that to almost everybody I know over the last week. That pair of panels, they're wonderful. Oh, it's it's definitely the defining panel of this story. Now, Excalibur decides that the thing to do is to contact Alistair Stewart of the Weird Happenings organization. And he takes the information he gets from them and immediately goes to have a fight with his boss. Now... His boss is not shown, and I don't think he's really named for, like, the first page and a half he appears. And I kept on expecting there to be a big reveal when we finally see him, because we just see Alistair, like, ranting at him for, like, two pages. Um, but no, it's just some dude. Yeah, and that's weird because Alison Stewart is, uh, Alistair's sister, is the one who's supposed to run the Weird Happenings organization, and this is just some guy named Mr. Kaplan. And Mr. Kaplan says, all right, now, Alistair, I know about this thing you just told me with Excalibur, and I know you mentioned you talked to a strange old man who lives in a strange old castle a month ago, and that he told you that weird things were going to start happening right around this time. But I, as the leader of the Weird Happenings organization, do not believe any of these weird happenings, and I'm therefore very very unqualified for my job. Like, this makes no sense. If there's this guy that suddenly runs the Weird Happenings organization, like, you'd think he would be okay with the idea of happenings being weird. We don't need a Walter Skinner of the Weird Happenings organization. First of all, I am feeling very attacked on behalf of Walter Skinner right now. Oh, Skinner's great, don't get me wrong. No, you compared Skinner to anything in this comic. Oh. Second... The amount of plot that Alistair dumps into this rant is unbelievable. And he talks about this stuff like we were supposed to know, oh, we talked to this weird old guy a couple months ago who had all of these predictions, but they weren't going to happen for a while, like a couple months. And now he's there and his name is Murdered and he lives in a castle and also there's shit going on with Excalibur. And we knew it was about Excalibur, but maybe it wasn't. It's, it's like word salad. Does it sound to you kind of like Alistair's just describing a dream? Okay, I assume that, like, 90% of the time when Alistair talks to his bosses in general, they assume he's just describing a dream. And about 60% of the time, he is. Yeah, that's a very good point. I do enjoy how Alistair Stewart is basically just a giant eight-year-old. Yeah, no, he's, he's like Fox, Fox Mulder in a, in a country with reasonable gun control. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's important. My, my, so the thing about... The X-Files is that I'm really uncomfortable with most of the main characters and it having access to firearms. Except John Doggett. I trust him. Yeah, no, John Doggett is great. And he's very responsible. And I know I've gone on rants about how he is he is the best FBI agent in the X-Files previously on this podcast. But I will say again, just for the rec record, hardcore Team Doggett, specifically Team Doggett Scully. Like that season is, is my X-Files season because I love that working dynamic. But anyway. Hell yeah, season eight. But anyway, yeah, so Alistair Stewart, despite having just had this multi-page uh, side story of yelling at his boss who doesn't believe in the things he's paid to believe in, Alistair Stewart meets up with Excalibur and just goes to the castle because the hell with direct orders. And there are these really neat visuals as they approach of these thick black circles around Phoenix and Megan's heads to kind of show the telepathic leashing almost. And inside that circle, Megan's form is just shifting from bestial to human and back. It does look cool. Like, Tom Morgan's style isn't really my cup of tea either. But he does a really good job with some of the fantastical elements here, and I want to give him props for that. There's, he does some cool compositional stuff. The thing I have the most trouble with him is that his, his faces and bodies, his anatomy and perspective look really amateurish to me. Sometimes, yeah. And that's something we've actually seen with a number of Excalibur fill-in artists. I don't know what it is about this book that tends to attract that style for their fill-in artists. Mm -hmm. well, or, or what about Marvel's sense of the sensibility of this book at the time that led them to specifically assign those folks to it? 
Right. Well, the team gets to the castle, and the doors swing open, and a bunch of spooky ghosts pour out. And also, a spectral head of Charles Xavier briefly appears. Sure, why the fuck not? Yeah, and Phoenix, at this, collapses, at which point Megan goes full monster and flies off as she bursts out of her costume. So, those of you listening, take a drink. You know what? Take two. You're going to have to get through more than half of this story still. Legit. So, Merge shows up, this, this weird old man, and he is very obviously Merlin. He is, and I mean, he looks kind of like Alan Moore, and I was trying to do the story some favors and not just immediately go in my head, well, obviously he's Merlin, which, spoiler, yeah, he totally is. Like, I just was trying to help the story. It's like when you're helping tutor someone, and every time, and they're not good at the subject, but every time they get a little part right, you, like, give them extra encouragement. Like, you start, you start thinking of them as being better at the topic than they are just because you want to will them into being better because you're so invested in improving the world around you. That's kind of how I read this comic. That's not, you, you don't tutor by force of will, Miles. There are, there's, there's actual... Sorry, I'm really upset right now. That's fair, and probably there are good reasons I've never been a tutor. Yeah, it's almost like one of us used to train, hire, and supervise tutors for several years professionally. That's legit. After, after, after you know, tutoring and teaching professionally for years. And, I mean, you, you do focus on positives, but you, you treat them as, as examples that the person can then work from as they're developing skills. I feel like you might have been better at helping Excalibur the possession better itself. I'm not sure there's really any saving Excalibur the possession on one hand, but on the other hand, there's really only one way it can go. Yeah, up, valid. And I'm going to regret saying that within like the next two minutes. I know I am, but... Well, Murd has lost his memory, apparently. He doesn't know what's going on at all. However, he does remember that, and I quote... A profane malevolence has been loosed o'er the face of the earth. A threat that must be driven out, lest we all perish. Now, usually this kind of retrograde amnesia just leaves you with procedural memory, like how to tie your shoes or how to do martial arts if you're a Resident Evil movie protagonist. Not like weird prophetic stuff, but, you know, whatever. This story sucks anyway. Well... Nightcrawler and Captain Britain immediately take off, the old man having been found, to search the creepy woods for Megan, and they actually both find her simultaneously. She's in her more human form at this point, uh, naked, because, you know, the costume ripped off, and dancing, quote, As if it were some sort of pagan ritual! Actually, it's just a hammer dance. No! You know what? I just realized what this comic reminds me of. This yeah. comic is like Orgy of the Dead but less coherent, and lacking Ed Wood's weirdly earnest approach to softcore necrophilia. Okay, okay, so I like most things, right? I mean, that's been established. I don't like this comic, and I don't like Orgy of the Dead, but I don't think that's a fair comparison. This comic, I, I read it twice, as I, as I usually do for podcast material, and while I didn't like it a ton, I mean, it was, you know... All right, Orgy of the Dead, I literally could not get through. And I've seen some terrible movies, but I just kept fast-forwarding through all the boring parts, and then the movie was over. That's because nine-tenths of Orgy of the Dead is scantily clad women dancing slowly and looking like they'd rather be somewhere else. The parts of it that actually involve narration, they aren't that interesting, but again, they make sense. They are at least fairly earnest. Like, Ed Wood is terrible but charming. This is just terrible. Well, and I guess Orgy of the Dead did have the benefit of, uh, was it the amazing Criswell and Vampira? Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, yes. Well, the team goes back to Braddock Manor, where Captain Britain hasn't been in a long time, and where the resurrected housekeeper, Emma Collins, awaits. Wait, wait, no, 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 no. This is unacceptable. Emma died way the hell back because of years of neurological damage from, from, from the computer, and Jamie Braddock resurrected her, but not at Braddock Manor. That was, like, in his house. Absolutely true. It's very strange because there's a lot of continuity nods in this comic to old Captain Britain comics, and I appreciate that, but they, they keep getting little details wrong. And to be fair, I guess we can't hold everyone to our own standards as explainers of the X-Men, but it would have been a nice little catch. No, you had one job. One job. It was to write a vaguely decent Excalibur script. One job. I feel like that's a job with a lot of sub-jobs. Is it really one job? I don't know. But... One of those sub-jobs is having even a vague knowledge of continuity. And this isn't recent stuff. This is stuff that happened, like, at the start of Excalibur. Emma shouldn't be here. 
Yeah, well, she should also recognize Kitty Pride, which she doesn't seem to, because she was the one that helped Kitty out when Kitty got pushed out of the cross-time caper. But, you know, whatever. Anyway, she's here, she's not here for very long, so let's move on to the basement, to Captain Britain's giant computer, in fact, Mastermind, although it isn't named as such, here. Okay, okay, I need to cl- clarify here, because I, I love this detail of Braddock Manor. It's not a basement, it's in the caverns below the manor. Like, it's a big cavern computer. It's in a cave. It is, but I actually always just assume that, like, you go downstairs and you're in a fucking cavern. There's not, like, a long passageway to get there. Oh, you grew up in Florida. You don't understand basements. I forgot that. I mean, I have basements now, but I did first read the Captain Britain trade paperback that came out in America collecting a lot of the second half of his of his uh, solo series that we covered um, when I was a kid in Florida. So yeah, I guess I just figured, like, you downstairs, giant goddamn cave filled with techno-organic-looking computer that murdered your parents. Well, that is sometimes true of basements in the Midwest. I, I think much, many more of them are standard basements, and they're also generally not full of computers because they tend to be pretty damp. There is that, but this basement is, and they use the computers to compute and realize that, number one, there are power surges at the location of Murd's castle, and number two, there's not supposed to be a castle there. What the hell? Murd continues to swear that he remembers nothing, but he can also lead them to Megan, because that makes sense as a combination of things, and Excalibur is like, sure, whatever, that's what we have to do for the plot to progress, we just yell random things and then act on them. And it kind of seems like Alistair Stewart's going to call that out, but then, mid-dialogue, he swerves. There is precious little time to waste, and we have nothing to lose by listening to the old man. But that's the thing. There's precious little time to waste. You have time to lose. The thing that is precious little. Alistair, I mean, I'm not saying your judgment is great, like, basically ever, but you're smart. You're a scientist. Come on, you don't just follow a crazy old man who says a bunch of vague things that imply he he knows what's up, but he actually doesn't. You know, going back to his first appearance in this comic, this does all work a lot better if we assume that it's just a dream Alistair is having, because it functions on that kind of railroady dream logic. It does. Yeah, I feel okay about that. And, spoiler for future coverage... That's kind of how this issue is going to turn out. This entire issue is going to be retconned away by Alan Davis. Every single event and every single page will be undone. Bless you, Alan Davis. Bless you. Well, Murr does successfully lead the team, somehow, back to the creepy woods and to Monster Megan, and this time Phoenix and Murr together are able to chill Megan out. There's no scary psychic presence anymore like there was before when that Charles Xavier head showed up and nobody commented on it, and Murr can also do, I don't know, stuff. So they take Megan back to Braddock Manor, where they are unfortunately unable to use science to cure her. Do you think it's because their definition of using science to cure her is just shoving a big Kirby machine in her face and shining some bright lights on it? Apparently so, so it's therefore time for magic. And they have a seance, which actually looks pretty hilarious, because it's all of them around a table holding hands, including big giant furry monster Megan. And immediately the ghost of Nikki Scott possesses Alistair. You might remember this guy as the kid whose death Captain Britain and Megan kind of inadvertently caused a long, long time back. I am not here as an enemy, but rather as a friend, as one of the mediums you will encounter in this quest. I gotta say, The Real Ghostbusters did A Christmas Carol better than Excalibur The Possession. Miles, The Real Ghostbusters probably did Orgy of the Dead better than Excalibur The Possession. Now I'm just imagining Lorenzo Music like voicing the amazing Criswell's lines. Oh, okay, side note, the real Ghostbusters cartoon was actually freaking great, and for the most part, until it turned into Slimer and the real Ghostbusters and got all, like, little kid-oriented, it holds up really well. We had J. Michael Straczynski and Peter David writing episodes. It was super clever. Like, I'm so happy because so many of those cartoons you watched when you were a kid, you watched them as an adult, and they're just god-awful. I'm looking at you, Thundercats, but the real Ghostbusters, fucking great. So anyway, um, then Jackdaw the Elf shows up. Yeah, that's Captain Britain's old sidekick. And then Doug Ramsey shows up. The ghost of Cypher shows up. I am so legitimately, honestly offended by this. Doug Ramsey did not die for this bullshit, Higgins. 
And to be fair, Tom Morgan does draw a convincingly devastated Kitty Pride as she just starts sobbing seeing this. But yeah, it does seem like kind of a a cheap shot. It's also not helped by the fact that the ghosts are these thick black ink outlines over this very shadowy background. So it's actually kind of hard to see what's going on. It kind of reminds me of um, Darkoth's dialogue in that Ron Excalibur fill-in story where they hang out with Doctor Doom and Limbo. Like, it's just sort of hard to tell what's going on. It's also hard to care because there's no particular reason that these characters are the ones who are here except that they're dead and they kind of have vague connections. They don't do anything that's in character. Um, we see more and more of the Alistair style, this is ridiculous, this is important, 180s. And um, finally, the big bad emerges, Charles Xavier, except it's not. It's, it's the changeling who inexplicably is wearing a matching sweater vest and panties. I mean, that's kind of similar to his original costume, along with his weird Katamari-looking helmet. Okay, but it's, when, when you draw it as just line art, and in this context, and the way it's drawn, like, it's definitely a sweater vest and panties set. That sounds pretty comfortable, I gotta say. Anyway, the Changeling was a former Factor 3 villain who fought the X-Men in the Silver Age and then had a change of heart. And was a major player in the first historic instance of what later became a commonplace event in the X-Universe, which is Charles Xavier faking his own death. Right, because Xavier had to go underground to prepare to fight aliens, and so he had the Changeling take his position, and he only told Marvel Girl for some reason. I actually really like the retcon in X-Men Grand Design by Ed Pisker, where we find out that, no, in this case, actually, Xavier told all the X-Men, they just pretended they thought that he was dead after the Changeling was killed by Grotesque. Yeah, I appreciate that, too. I think that's something that Ed and I actually ended up talking about when he was on the podcast, because for me... That's such a moral event horizon for Xavier when he, like, collects this group of traumatized orphans, makes one of their families forget they exist. Like, he, Beast, Beast's parents at this point had no idea he was still alive and then fakes his own death. Like, what the fuck is wrong with this person? But, um, yeah, no, I thought, I thought that, was, that was definitely a good choice on Ed's part <laughs> to change that. Well, the Changeling was later brought back as a zombie by the voodoo priest Black Talon to fight She-Hulk, but Changeling still didn't want to be a villain, so instead he turned into Elvis to distract Black Talon so that She-Hulk could win. And, and Morph, whom you may recognize from the 1992 X-Men cartoon and who would later in the comics become a major player first in the Age of Apocalypse and then in Exiles, is an alternate universe version of the Changeling. Yep. So Changeling died a hero, but apparently, according to this comic, his ghost was really resentful of Charles Xavier, you know, because he spent his last months posing as Xavier instead of trying to cure his own cancer, which I gotta say, cancer's like really hard to cure, so I'm not sure that he would have had much luck. Yeah, but I feel like it's also kind of valid to resent the shit out of Charles Xavier from manipulating people so he can fake his own death again. That's legit. And apparently the only reason this plot of this comic is happening is because Changeling thought that Megan might be a good conduit back into the world of the living. He actually doesn't give a shit about Excalibur in any other way. So Kitty and Doug, the ghost of Doug, hold off Changeling's ghost for Megan's body while the ghost of Jackdaw the Elf, Captain Britain's old sidekick, takes Nightcrawler and Captain Britain's spirits to the space between life and death, which has some pretty cool like 90s computer graphics backgrounds. It's kind of like a rad Trapper Keeper situation if you had one of those. I totally did. Mine was just orange. I mean, you know, orange is cool. It was, no, it was like, holog it was and, like holographic. It was cool. It was lenticular orange. Nice. Well... Nightcrawler and Captain Britain use how much they care about Megan to zap Changeling's ghost with, quote, nothing but the resolve of their souls. And at that point, Phoenix and Murd are able to purge Megan of the possession and all the ghosts fade away, which leads Murd to reveal something completely shocking and surprising. Yep, he was Merlin all along. He was Merlin all along. And of course, at this point in continuity, Merlin's been dead for quite a while. That's why Roma's been, you know, running multiverse stuff. Yeah, he's dead and a villain. Yup. But according to this comic, he never really died back in the day. Instead, he transported himself to Earth to wait for the events of this story, of Excalibur, the Possession, to wait for a C-list Forgotten Silver Age X-Men character to break bad years after his death and redemption. Huh. 
So um, Captain Britain is is appropriately annoyed at being in a Michael Higgins story and demands to know why Merlin has been lying to them, which is kind of ridiculous because that Merlin literally, like since the moment he entered Captain Britain's life, which was arguably before Captain Britain's conception, all he's really done is lie and manipulate. But um, but he Captain Britain still wants an explanation because I, I guess the, that's just his thing, man. Is isn't going to hold water here. Your words are harsh, but not heartfelt. Perhaps it is because you know I am, as ever, your friend. Perhaps it is because you know the very fabrics of reality have been stretched to their limits. Perhaps it is because you know this is, in fact, little more than a test, and that the true obstacles in your life are yet to come. I think Merlin's deflecting, like, a lot. That's pretty much what Merlin does, aside from lying and manipulating. But also... There are all these points in the story where someone's like, it's a mysterious but important thing and maybe a test and none of it's ever elaborated on. It's just like, oh, it's a mystery that I couldn't explain or didn't feel like explaining. It's like, okay, sure, thank you. We do get a bit of an explanation in a single dialogue bubble of why this all happened. Apparently when the Darkhold, the big spooky evil book that a lot of the Marvel Universe's cosmic side, or I guess supernatural side is is based around, it was recently recreated and that allowed some ghosts to slip back into the world. You know, Jackdaw, Mickey, Cypher, Changeling. And it's just such a weird throwaway little explanation. Yeah, this other thing happened in a completely unrelated book. And so this character came back who wanted to get revenge on somebody who's not in this book, but one of the characters was convenient along that path. It's, I feel like you could do something with that. You could do something even that would fit Excalibur very well. The idea of like, you know, the I'm not even supposed to be here today, unfortunate series of occurrences. And I think if this book played with that, it could work really well, but it doesn't. It really doesn't do anything particularly well. It does at least finally end. I'll give it that. It does, as Excalibur poses, complete with Megan dressed in like a tiny little sweater that barely covers her bits, because you remember she burst out of her costume, um, in front of these Mufasa-like skyheads of Merlin, Roma, and King Arthur for some reason, Excalibur is rededicated in their mission to, I don't know, be confused, I guess. I hate this comic. Well, you know who we don't hate? Our listeners, and they've got questions. Jetty Comics asks on Tumblr, why exactly are X-Force considered criminals by the other X-teams? Are they wanted for a specific crime? They have kind of a brash attitude, but it doesn't seem like they've done things too much differently from the way the X-Men themselves have. You're absolutely right, and the answer is basically spin. So the X-Men, who periodically, I, I will remind you, also been branded a terrorist organization, do what they do under the banner of superheroes. And that's, that's a paradigm that this world's pretty used to. X-Force doesn't. They are really straight up a paramilitary organization. And so they're, they, they don't fit as well into that world's heroic paradigms. And some of it, and I think a big chunk of it is, is the sort of because the writers say so. Some of it, I think, is, is that Cable is, is a shady dude who has historically been up to no good or at least up to good with real big guns and fairly illegally. So people are unlikely to give him the benefit of the doubt. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's mostly spin and context. If we're looking at it a little more specifically, early on, uh, I think we talked about this recently, but um, after this question was submitted, Gideon uses his powers of, I guess, top-not granted media spin control to convince the world that X-Force was in cahoots with Black Tom and the Juggernaut back when they attacked the World Trade Center. I think the relevant power in that case is being rich and having the ear of media people. That's legit, yeah. Now, Cable didn't see the value of counter-PR because he's Cable, and thus only people only really listened to Gideon, and thus X-Force was wanted for, at the very least, questioning. And that's what we see, for instance, in X-Factor, when Cannonball goes to, quote, rescue Rain, and uh, Lorna wants to take him in, at least initially. Also on Tumblr, um, Intergalactic Zoo contacted us to ask whether Mikhail Rasputin has ever met Vulcan, or if Colossus and Cyclops have ever bonded commiserating over their disappearing space brothers. That would actually be an awesome idea. I mean, okay, maybe less the first pairing, because not only are Mikhail Rasputin and Kid Vulcan both space brothers, but they're also both kind of terrible. But Cyclops and Colossus bonding over losing family in weird ways? That would be rad. I mean, as much as X-Men is a franchise known for well-realized character dynamics, well-realized character pairings, like, say, Colossus and Nightcrawler, or Cyclops and Storm, or Wolverine and, like, really, most people. Wolverine's pairings with most people are pretty interesting. 
We've never seen a ton of Cyclops-Colossus interaction, which is weird because they've spent a ton of time working together. We just don't get a lot of conversations between, between the two, especially a lot of personal conversations. They have spent a lot of time working together, but when they have, it's typically been on teams that include people that each of them is much closer to than they are to the other. So they don't tend to be the two characters who go off and do things together when they're doing things together. They also tend to end up playing similar, well, not exactly similar roles in combat, but if you're dividing up the team um, and sticking, you know, a person who can do massive amounts of structural damage on each squad, they're going to end up on different squads most of the time. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but still, they could have a lot of cool conversations about, like, sacrificing idealism for pragmatism or losing themselves to the job. And I don't know. I mean, uh, if Cyclops ever comes back from the dead, which I'm sure he will at some point, they should have a talk. That's what I say. Um, listeners, if you have any examples of good Cyclops-Colossus conversations, um, let us know in the comments because I'm very curious. Right on. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show for a number of fictional characters and concepts, and I... Okay, I, I believe I am turning the mic over today to, uh, this, this seems a little bit dangerous, but um, let's hear from the renegade Nuri in Wolverine's head. Rip. Blood. Feast. John Taylor. Thirst. Blood. Kill. Devin DeYoung. Hunger. And now we'll turn it over in a large bit of contrast to the angry Claremontian narrator. You've worked long and hard to unknot a lifetime of broken and tangled memories, Brian Cundy, to learn what is real and what is a twisted construct of the minds that formed you into the weapon you are today. But what if they were never your memories at all and merely a pale reflection of James Mitchell's? And with that... Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be dusting off our best Claremontian accents and romantic tropes to talk Rogue and Gambit with writer Kelly Thompson. 